Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate Don Julius inviting me to come <clears throat> to speak to you on the, I think, a subject that has become more interesting, and that is uh, subversive movements and secret societies. Because if we had any doubt that these things exist, the last month has convinced us that we have in our midst a subversive movement and a secret society that we're fighting. If indeed uh, when we talk about what happened in, in the events of September 11th, uh, this was pulled off by a conspiracy, uh, which is a, and pulled off by, a, in a sense, a secret society. So when I speak today, a lot of times before when I would mention these things, people would scoff and say, oh, there's no such thing, and this is silly, and whatever else. But if indeed Mr. Bin Laden did it, and I think the evidence shows that he probably did, there are probably people behind him uh, that were involved in this. It certainly shows how virulent and how dangerous these movements can be. I would also caution you, a lot of people will want to start studying about secret societies and subversive movements. And I would say that this is a subject that you should only approach with a lot of prayer. Because one of the things that you can do if you get into this study is it can become very, very depressing. And you're really dealing in a lot of ways with a diabolic movement. And <clears throat> whenever you do that, you will not be able to keep your sanity unless you have the help of, of Our Lady and of St. Michael and of Christ. And it's, it's nothing that you should get into lightly. Okay, I notice there is a book by Father Kelly in the back on this, and so I would, I would caution you. Um, can all of you hear me? No. Can I hear me? Okay. Can you hear me now? No, okay. The system is not working, isn't it? Let's see, we got both of them on. That's the camera system, okay. Okay, that's no problem. Can all of you hear me now? That's better. I don't know how close, much closer I can get this. Is that better? <laughs> can you hear me now? All right. Let's, let's start over then so that all of you catch it. If I had given this talk in August, a lot of you would be uh, asking yourself, what is this business of subversive movements and secret societies? But the events of September 11th, have certainly convinced us that there are secret societies operating and that they are capable of doing immense amount of evil. And if we say that this secret society of Mr. Bin Laden that has now shown the evil in this country, um, we certainly can see how a subversive movement operated. But I want to turn the clock back. And as I talk and as I go through this, you're going to see certain parallels that exist today, and I'll bring your attention to them, of what happened in France before the revolution. If we go back a hundred and say 200 years, three, almost 300 years back to the Bourbon monarchy of France, what we find is that from about 1700 to 1814, or actually to, to 1789, France was the most powerful country in Europe and in the world. The French had the largest population. The population of France was larger than that of Russia. 
The Jesuits in France were very active. And as those of you who know your history, of uh, especially this particular area, this area was controlled by the French, and the Jesuits spent a good deal of time converting the Indians. In fact, we know that we had a number of martyrs, a number of saints who spent their time doing that. And the French Jesuits were sent all over the world. And at that time, they were very orthodox. And they were committed to teaching the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. When the young Jesuit, the young French Jesuit, was ordained, one of the promises he made was when he taught, and remember the Jesuits were the school teachers of Europe, that they would teach in the method of St. Thomas. France was technologically the most advanced country in the world prior to the revolution. Um, our modern day computers, the digital computer, was invented in France to actually do the weaving of tapestries. So we have a country that was highly Catholic and in which you had a, a consciously Catholic presence that was doing enormous amount of missionary activity. It had a very, very high culture. And at that time, the French monarchy deliberately censored all kinds of pornography and all sorts of anti-Catholic propaganda that was being put out. So at that time, prior to Louis XVI, the French monarchy would not allow there to be the printing of pornography, nor would the monarchy allow there to be any sort of anti-Catholic propaganda. That just simply was not allowed in France. Now, there's a lot of criticism of that, and we'll get into the criticism of it. The Bourbon monarchy had certain weaknesses. Part of the weakness of Louis XIV and Louis XV was that they were given uh, uh, to a, an awful lot of centralization. They wanted to centralize power in Paris. And in a sense, it weakened France. The other things is that the Bourbon monarchs were constantly going to war. And as they're constantly going to war, war, as you know, is very, very expensive, as I think we're about ready to find out. And as war is very, very expensive, what happened is they spent themselves into bankruptcy. Now, given that situation in France, Remember now, you've been told in school that the French monarchs were oppressive and that the poor were, were revolting and all the rest of this stuff. And that's why we had the French Revolution. That is not why we had the French Revolution. As an economist, I can tell you that the economic studies uh, tell us today that the French economy prior to the revolution was growing four times as fast as the British economy. So fast it was growing. And so you had a fairly prosperous nation that was Catholic, the monarchy was consciously Catholic, missionaries going out all over the world. And into this culture came the disease. And it was a three-pronged attack. In other words, we're going to talk about the conspiracy, the people, the actors who overthrew the Bourbon monarchy. And we might add, since then, France has never been a major power since the collapse of the king. After Napoleon, France disappeared from the, the state of major powers. And in France today, it's almost become a pagan country. And the question now is, how did that happen? When I was researching this, I came across the book that I got in the, it was a, a printed in the English, and I had it, I had a copy that was printed in 18, or, 1796. 
And it was called, it was called Memoirs History Illustrating the History of Jacobinism by a French priest, the Abbe Barol. And as I read the book, and I did research on this because I was very, very curious how a great country like that, a Catholic country like that, could become full of anti-clericalism, could become full of anti-Catholicism, and could absolutely collapse. And it was, a, it, was an in, it was a specific interest of mine. And I read and read and read material. I found that all of the authors footnoted Abbe Burrell. And I said, this book has to go back into print. And so it took us about four or five years to finally get the book reprinted. And the story that Abbe Barul tells is a story that you're going to find parallels to in the present United States. A good friend of mine, Otto Scott, refers to the United States as being in a pre-revolutionary situation. In other words, we are, we are seeing these various tendencies occur. Now, what was the nature of the conspiracy? Now, when I talk about conspiracy, always remember you have to, it has two meanings. One meaning is a conscious network to achieve an evil purpose. There's no question that Mr. Bin Laden, if all the facts that were being given are true, is the first type of conspiracy. That's a conspiracy to do what? To achieve an evil purpose. It's centrally controlled. And it has, it's, it's unified. The second type of conspiracy is what we might call networking. For example, if you take a look at, at the uh, elections and you find out who gives money to these candidates. For example, in our, in our state, Michigan, I took a look at the, the people who were fighting our senator who was defeated, Spence Abraham. And you found out that there was a whole coalition of groups, the pro-homosexual groups, the abortion groups, the teachers union, the types of people who wanted certain favors, etc. And there was this whole network, as it were, that was fighting Spence Abraham and defeated him. And they may not agree amongst themselves, but they, because they all wanted to collapse Mr. Abraham and wanted to give us a very liberal senator, they all came together. Now that type of conspiracy is not monolithic. That type of conspiracy is networking. And any of you who've been involved in politics understand the difference between networking and a conspiracy. For example, the, our President Bush is putting together a network of a lot of people who can't get along at all in order to overcome the evil that we see, this, this terrorist network. I mean, there are countries that are Christian, there are countries that are Islamic, there are countries that are Jewish, there are countries of all kinds of people who don't agree amongst themselves, but for, on a specific purpose will come together to achieve a goal. Let's now go back to having said that, the nature of conspiracies always remember these two things. Now, when we talk about the conspiracy, the conspiracy basically had three parts. The first part were the philosophers, the French intellectual class. And this was this group was led by Voltaire, D'Alembert, Frederick II of Prussia. And they were consciously anti-Christian. In fact, Voltaire would always sign his letters with the French term, across the flame. The, the, and then that was the attack on the church. Crush the wretch. 
And he would write the letters against the church, and then at the end he would put that French phrase, crush the wretch. And Voltaire was dedicated, and he said once, he said 12 men founded Christianity, 12 apostles. He says one man will collapse it, and he meant himself. And he wrote all sorts of cynical works and cynical things and had a group of intellectuals working and constantly attempting to do what? To defame the church, to embarrass the church, to embarrass Christianity. I might mention that when you study the lives of these people, you find that all kinds of what we might call sexual irregularities. Okay? I, and you see this constantly as you study their lives. For example, they were constant pushers of pornography. And I might add today in our country, one of our major problems is that 60% of the hits on the internet are pornographic. They were, they were constant cynics and constantly deriding anything the church did. If any of you read the, uh, the uh, book, I don't advise you reading it, uh, Candide by Voltaire, you can see the attack on the church very subtly. And they worked. And they said, Voltaire consciously said, the only way we are going to be able to attack the church in France is to collapse the Jesuit order. In other words, the Jesuits at that time, I don't mean at this time, okay, but at that time were the champions of the church. And he said, we have to get them suppressed. And finally, they worked and worked and worked to get the Jesuits suppressed. Now, when the Jesuit order was suppressed, they had an open field day because it was almost as if, uh, you know, your human body has certain antibodies, right? And a healthy human body gets rid of disease. Why? Because the immune system is strong. And at that time, in France, the Jesuit order was the immune system for the church. It was orthodox. It was dedicated. It was Thomistic. And it was missionary. And it was holding the French church together. And Voltaire was very, very wise because, you know, in an evil way, he knew that if he could collapse the Jesuit order, that the church would lo lose, in a sense, its immune system. And once the Jesuit order collapsed, once it was suppressed, okay, all kinds of things started rolling out. The first thing they did was to publish something they called the Encyclopedia. And the Encyclopedia was written to encompass all knowledge, written from an anti-Christian and an anti-Catholic standpoint. The idea of it was, was that we will invade the academies and we will secularize them. Now here's what I mean by secularization. Secularization means it's a movement to deny that there's any religious reality at all. And suddenly, if you were a scientist, you eschewed religion. You said, I'm a scientist, I'm not going to be religious. This all started with the encyclopedia. And Barul traces their works. And he talks about the quotes French Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was what? To deny the reality of the spiritual world. So history was written without any reference to religion. Now think of it, folks. Can you write a proper history of the United States without a reference to religion? I mean, most of the people who came here came for religious freedom. Okay? Thanksgiving 
George Washington, any of you care to look back in his uh, writings? Our pastor hands it out every, every uh, Thanksgiving. Large thing, thanking God. The first Christmas was what? Thanking God for the Constitution. Thanking God for the victory. Thanking God for the establishment of the United States. And yet, all of our history books today, and they discuss the, they're discussing the Middle East, they're discussing large world movements, and yet professors today will not refer to religion at all. Why? Because they go back to Voltaire, and Voltaire said, and laid down in a sense the canon that religion has to be forced out of public life. And of course, the French intellectuals did that. The French intellectuals also wanted complete freedom of the press. And I realized in the United States, we all have, we have freedom of the press, but they did not want the French monarchy stopping what they were writing. And at that time, remember, Louis, the Bourbon kings, believed that they had a duty to keep junk, to keep evil things out of the public mind. Now, in America, we don't have that tradition, but think of it in France. They wanted that broken down. And they, in a sense, wanted the freedom, and they call it the Republic of Letters. They looked back to pagan Rome, and they said, we ought to return to the way pagan Rome was. They also criticized Christianity for collapsing pagan Rome. And they looked back and they said, not only do we look back to pagan Rome, but we want to establish that kind of government. Not Christian Rome, pagan Rome. The other thing about these philosophers is that they were all Newtonians. And they all believed that the world could be explained strictly in terms of the laws of physics and chemistry. That, there, that what we could do is, we could explain the whole world as being nothing but the operation of Newtonian physics. Okay? In other words, they were materialist. Now, in certain cases, Voltaire said, we have to have some kind of religion around, because otherwise we'll have disorder. But we're not going to pay much attention to that. In other words, religion now is relegated again and marginalized off the sidelines. The second influence were what we might call the occult masons. And what they wanted was they wanted the collapse of the monarchy because they wanted a republic. They wanted a Roman form of government. And they worked to undermine the French monarchy and worked to undermine the state. In some cases, they were a lot like the New Agers. And a lot of their beliefs, if you were to go back into Barol and you were to go to a New Age bookstore, you would find that they have the same thing in common. In other words, the New Age movement that we have in the United States today is very, very much like the occult masons back in that time. And you had people like Mesmer who would mesmerize people and you would have all this sort of magical stuff going on, much today just like New Agers. And they would look back to Egypt or, or some of these civilizations and want to bring those religions, which in a sense are New Age, forward. Now the last group, and perhaps the most organized, and the most important, and the foot soldiers who carried it off, were the Brotherhood of the Illuminati. Founded in, on May 1st, 1776 in Bavaria, and founded with a purpose in mind to change society. Father Brule calls these the anti-social conspiracy. 
And the head basically, since I have this microphone, I can move away from it, I guess. They had basically four things they wanted to achieve. In other words, they wanted to, to set up a society on these four bases. Number one, okay, the first thing. Atheism. They, they said that God was, was a, uh, a myth, that we don't need God, etc. And they wanted to set up a society, and the, the top of their membership did not believe in any sort of God. They were pure atheists. And they preached this. Okay? That was the first thing they said. We want a society without the influence of any religion. And when they meant any religion, they meant Christianity, Judaism, whatever. No religion at all. No reference to God. Okay, number two, no private property. In other words, they looked back to Plato and Plato's Republic, and they saw what? They saw a society that Plato imagined, or part of a society that he imagined, in which there would be no private property. All things would be held in common. Number three, they wanted to, de to denigrate the influence of the family. Now remember, 1776, okay? Family, they said, prevents us from having our utopia because the parents teach their children all kinds of mistaken ideas, religion, tradition, etc. And that has to be eliminated. And therefore, the influence of the family has got to, got to be denigrated. Who will take over the raising of children? The state. Finally, <coughs> they wanted to get rid of the monarchy. They were absolutely opposed to monarchy. Now remember, the monarchies of Europe, especially the Christian monarchs, were protectors of the church. Every and I realize there's a lot of problems with them, and Americans look at monarchy much different than Europeans did, but they were all protectors of the church. Whether they were Protestant countries or Catholic countries, the kings protected and promoted the church. And the idea was is if we can collapse the monarchies, we can then what? Impose our reign of atheism. Also, the kings were looked upon as protectors of private property and protectors of family. And all of this had to go. And when we look at the transition of it, there were a lot of people who believed this throughout the centuries. But the essential thing about the Illuminati was not their beliefs, because they this uh, system of beliefs goes all the way back to Plato. We, found this, we find this in the Greek writings. Atheism, no private property, no family. But what made them unique was their system of organization. And you're seeing that in television today. Because what are they talking about? We've got to break up these cells. In other words, the best way to understand how the Illuminati operated is to understand that it was socialism or atheism on the Amway plan. It was multi-level marketing. And the way it worked was, and think of this, okay, you have Mr. Bin Laden up here, and what does he have? He has a number of cells, right? In these various countries. 
Our security people estimate that he has cells in 50 countries reporting to him. And then what? Then there are subcells. And subcells after that. Now, the question is, is if you break one of these cells, what happens? You can't get to the big, the big guy. Every drug operation operates this way. Every intelligence service operates this way. And why, if you take a look at it, they had a pyramidal structure. And if you, if you uh, were to look at a book uh, that came out called Citizens by Shama, a professor at, uh, I believe, at Yale University who wrote a book on the French Revolution, he has pictures of them. And what were they doing? They were carrying pictures of pyramids. Why? That was their system of organization. And they had this red hat. You'll often see this red hat, which was a symbol of being liberated from slavery. Now, what slavery did they want to be liberated from? The church, the family, the king, and private property. So that when you look at how they operated, okay, and you see the symbols, it plays right in, step by step. Now, let's take a look at the United States today. Okay, we are arguably in somewhat the same position that France was. For the most part, the United States is a Christian country, especially if you looked at the last electoral map. Okay, in other words, the, the overwhelming number of Americans are Christians. We have a large population. Up until the 1950s, America sent missionaries all over the world. You looked around the world, and who, who, was, who were the people who were manning the, the uh, trenches? They were American kids who became missionaries. Relatively high standard of living. A very, very high culture. Now, what has happened since that? Well, the Illuminati, or the present-day Illuminists, have done what? They've eaten ever so slowly away, step by step, through what? What do they push? Well, we've got to now you just take a look at their program, folks. There's nothing new under the sun. Noli novus, subsola. Nothing new under the sun. What have we been pushed? Atheism. When I was a boy, regardless of what town you lived in, on Good Friday, what happened? From 12 to 3, every business was closed. Gas stations, malt shops, bicycle repair places, all the businesses did what? They closed down. What's happened to that? You see, we can no longer even practice our faith. It no longer has anything to do with our public life because gradually, what has this group done? They've pushed it out of public life. In other words, we now have the reign of atheism. And in our schools today, you would have to say that the official teaching in public schools, not mentioned, not said, but certainly in reality, certainly de facto, is what? There is no God, and religion should have no influence. Belief should have no influence on public life. Take a look at what's happened to private property. Okay? Ever since the passage of the Federal Reserve Board, which is really the, the, the world's inflation machine, 
and the progressive income tax and the inheritance tax and the corporate income taxes, private property and the environmentalist movement has been consistently attacked. There is no way to organize society without this. Okay? What's happened to the family? Now we're taking children away at three and four years old for preschool. In other words, they're being raised not by their parents or by their family, but now by strangers outside the family. And the way the economic system has been set up, or is set up, what's happened is, is it takes two people to support a family today. I mean, my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, one salary. Okay, my father, one salary. Okay, in our generation, we've been fairly fortunate. Six brothers and sisters, okay, four of them, one salary, two of them, two salaries. Guess what's happened to the number of children? Because they're working, instead of having four or five and six children, now they're having one or two. So what hap what's happening is, is this is a direct attack on the family. Okay, obviously in monarchy, there has been a systematic attack. We don't have a monarchical system, but there certainly has been a systematic attack on our Constitution. It's a living document, which means it really doesn't exist. We can interpret it any which way we want. In the United States, what ruled? The Constitution ruled. Now today, well, the Constitution rules, but we can interpret it to say anything we want it to say. Now, folks, what I'm telling you here is, is that all of this has a precedent. And the precedent was revolutionary France. And when that thing broke loose, okay, you could say that it was a, a, an enormous murder and sex orgy. That's what the French Revolution was. There's nothing that came out of that revolution that was good. It was the first time we had genocide. The first time a government actually went out and killed its own people. French Revolution. The income tax, born right out of the French Revolution. Fiat money inflation, paper money inflation, French Revolution, military draft, French Revolution, getting involved in everybody else's countries, trying to reform them. The French tried that. And my warning to you is this, is I don't know to what extent, although I'm very suspicious, that the same heirs to this thing have been passing this down step by step, but certainly the precedents are there in the United States. Now, what's the solution? The solution is like a body. Bodies that are strong and have a good immune system can do what? Can ward off disease. What happened? If any of you read the works of Malachi Martin, you know that the first order that was targeted was what? The Jesuit order. I was trained by Jesuits before 1965. It's a whole different training today. They were Catholic. They were committed. They were enthusiastic. They were missionary. They were orthodox. You see, and what happens with the Illuminati mentions is that they would infiltrate. And they said, we'll infiltrate the seminaries. And we'll infiltrate the media. And we'll infiltrate the publishing houses. And we'll infiltrate public life. And the people will be loyal to our agenda not to why they've been put in there. So in a sense, what you have today is you do have secret societies and subversive movements. Maybe not as secret, 
although we're seeing it now with Mr. Bin Laden, certainly, but we do have movements, and a lot of people are not even aware of it. And the reason they're not aware of it is because, in a sense, they've been trapped. Now think of it, folks. The, when we were in, in school, we were told something about the temporal effects of sin. In this country today, we have had 40 million abortions. So let's say that we've had two per person. That's 20 million people who've gone through that. Now when they vote, to vote pro-life, they have to admit something to themselves. They have to admit that they took a human life, and that's very, very difficult. We have to be forgiving, and I understand that. But unless they've confessed that and gotten rid of that sin, that sin has an effect. And pornography, it's dulling the intellect. St. Thomas was very, very specific on that, that appealing to lust dulls the intellect. And the people here, parole, points out that the Illumina said we will control the population by controlling sexual appetite. We can control sexual appetite, we can control the population. The other thing is, is that we have, we have gotten too many of our people dependent upon handouts from the state. And when they're dependent upon handouts from the state, they're not objective voters. Because when they go into the booth, they say, look, my company's gonna get this contract, and I better vote for politician so-and-so. Or this is gonna happen, or that's gonna happen. So, in a sense, what we have to do, and the, the, the antidote for this, is number one, to understand what their program is. Number two, to build a strong Christian society. And I think if there was any time that we could do it, it's after the events of September 11th. Because now we can say, this is what happens when you don't have a Christian society. They tell me now, my friends tell me, and I've seen it too, that the churches have a lot more people in them now. People are beginning to realize what happens. And I think we as, as Catholics have to say, this is what happens when you, when you have a society that does not have the strength to fight. Because if it is not a Christian society or a Catholic society, the strength to fight is lost. England, France today, are almost totally non-Christian. If any of you visited England or France, you'll find that. Churches are absolutely empty. And what we see is the work of the Illuminati, or the work of this program. I don't know whether we can say it's the specific Illuminati doing it. We published the book. Unfortunately, there are, I only have now four copies left. We are working now to get the money into to get it back into print, which it will be available, and I will certainly let uh, Don Julius know when those uh, books will be available if you want to read them. But I would caution you again, okay, that the most important thing you can do is to promulgate the Christian life, because that's the antidote. Hopefully, hopefully, the teaching and the, and, and the, of Christianity, and, and particularly of Catholicism, will become the leaven and the loaf. The other, and again, I would reiterate my warning, because I'm going to take questions from you in a few minutes, is that when you get into this stuff, you have to be very careful. Because the problem is, is a lot of people start reading conspiracy theory, and they think it's all around them, and they, be, they either get so involved in tracing this stuff, because it's interesting to trace it, that they can't think about anything else, or they become so depressed. And I would, I would warn you about, about getting involved with doing a lot of the reading in it. I mean, if you, 
if you have a good prayer life and whatever else, then I would think that it might be okay to do. Okay? So in any event, if we take a look at, at um, revolutionary, pre-revolutionary France and we take a look at the United States, we see a lot of parallels. And we see a lot of parallels in what seems to be happening in both countries. So with that, I'll be glad to answer any questions. We have about a half hour to do that. And I, I know every time I give this talk that there are a lot of people who have questions. So I'd be happy to entertain any questions you have. Yes, sir. The Illuminati is really, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Ye shall be as gods. Okay, here? Okay. Oh, oh I'm sorry. The, um, the question the gentleman asked is, why? And the whole story is in Genesis, sir. Because what is the temptation? In other words, if you take a look at temptations, there's a parallel between Genesis and there's a parallel between the temptations of Christ. Okay? First of all, it's... Eve takes a look at the fruit and says what? It appeals to the senses, right? It looks good, right? And what does Satan say to Christ? Turn these stones into bread, right? Appeal to the, that, those sort of senses. Then the appeal to wonder, the appeal to work these great things. You know, God knows. God knows that and he doesn't want you to have this. See, he doesn't want you to be like him. And then, of course, the appeal to power, you shall be as gods. And it's the same parallel. Now, when you come back to the Illuminist, or let's call it the Illuminist conspiracy, what is the temptation? Temptation number one, you can do anything you want on a sensual order. Right? In other words, why are we fighting AIDS today? I mean, there's a solution to all of these problems. I tell my students, I said, do you want to solve sexually transmitted diseases? And solve them in one generation by practicing chastity. That's the solution. So what are they doing now? They're trying to figure ways technologically that they can do whatever they want sensually and not have to bear the burden of it. <laughs> Number one, okay? Number two, man will then work wonders. We don't need God. We'll have it nice for ourselves. And then the last thing, the last temptation is, you shall be as gods. You can construct your own social order, and you can make what's right right and what's wrong wrong the way you want to do it. And the Illuminists were, in a sense, drunk with the last one. Every utopia, every utopia is what? The idea that I can construct a better order than God can, right? I mean, Karl Marx said that, okay? Every single utopian comes out and says, I don't need, I don't need God. We can do it better. And that, in a sense, is the Illuminist temptation. Okay? Okay, any other questions? Yes, sir. Is the Lodge movement independent or affiliated with anyone else? If I were, I don't know. But if I were a betting man, I, I don't think he's the, uh, the top banana in this. I don't think bin Laden is where the authority of this thing stops. But I don't have enough evidence, so I wouldn't want to make a, a statement. But the fact that he's been able to do all these sort of things tells me that there's been a lot of other people cooperating with him. 
But I don't, I don't have any evidence on that, so I couldn't speak authoritatively. It's just a surmising. Yes? I was wondering if you could uh, tell me about uh, movies that have been produced in Hollywood the last few years. The first one, Titanic, and then this one this year, Pearl Harbor. And uh, the current, current thought in those films, uh, if it is auto-destructive, the current that's going through the train of what they're trying to Okay. Yeah. The, gen the gentleman asked the question whether the, the current state of Hollywood in the movies, particularly the movie Titanic and uh, Pearl Harbor, were part of the auto-destructive mechanism. And I would say this, I would say the best thing you could do is just stop going to the movies. Okay, I don't watch television, I don't get any, I, I get the Wall Street Journal, I have to as an economist. But first of all, is there an auto-destructive thing? Yes, the movies have a basic underlying, a basic underlying thread. A lot of them do, they have it. I did not see Titanic. Um, I understand that it was full of uh, class warfare kind of stuff and uh, you know, things that were just absolutely absurd, especially at that time, of people having sexual affairs you know, before the ship sinking, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, so I think, in a sense, that was meant to, to uh, destroy any sense of heroism. Now, Pearl Harbor is a little bit more interesting because there, there are two things in there I think are very important. Number one is, is it does show Roosevelt as wanting to get into World War II. And it does show the Japanese high command saying, because the Americans have cut off the oil supply, we are forced into war. Now that is something that's not known in American history classes. I mean, the real story of Pearl Harbor is not known. Um, it was a love story in a sense for which Pearl Harbor was the background. It was one of the f few movies I went to see, but I wanted to see it because of the way they portrayed Roosevelt. And, um, but I do think in a sense there was some um, destructivity. Uh, I don't think at that time from talking to my grandparents and my parents, the sexual promiscuity was quite as uh, rampant as that movie wanted to show it. Okay, uh, there was a lot more restraint on sexual appetites prior to the 50s. So, in a sense, uh, I would say, in both cases, um, I would agree with you that they have been auto-destructive. Okay, yes, ma'am. I'll, I'll, let's see. I'll try to go over one. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Now, just remember your number. All right. Uh, my mother claimed that years ago, at the beginning of the 19th century, the priest got on like about in 1935 on the uh, pulpit and said that there were 35,000 men and women placed in the seminaries to destroy the faith. Okay. That was a back conception church. Sure. The, the question is asked is uh, where, if I can phrase it right, that the priests in the, in the 30s understood that there were infiltrators going into the clergy. Okay? And I think, I think in a sense that's true. There's no question about that. Uh, I think there are two types. There were two types. I think the, number one was the, the leftist who went in with the deliberate, deliberate idea of destroying the church. I mean, he went in, he or she went into the religious orders with the idea that they could achieve power 
They were not interested in preaching the gospel of Christ. Okay, and the, for them, it became a job that they could get into. I think there was another type, though. I think there was a type that, that where the children were forced into the seminary. Various psychological pressures were put on, and many of them did not really have vocations. And they went in to satisfy mom and dad and, you know, Aunt Margaret and Grandma, and got into, the, got into it and, in a sense, lost their faith. And I think those two are very important. I mean, this did not happen because of all the infiltrators. But on the other hand, they were very important in there. I mean, I can tell you in, in, um, that I, I know of in the Diocese of Detroit where there was a lady who was running um, a very nice-sounding thing called the Roundtable of Christians and Jews, and she would have the young seminarians over to her house and indoctrinate them with Marxist propaganda. So that was going on. And a lot, of the, a lot of the clergymen got involved with the social justice movement and became sympathetic to Marxism, and they brought that in. But on the other hand, you had people who went into the seminaries and into the convents who really probably should not have been there and who carried a bitterness because of that. Now, a lot of them have already left. But always remember, I, in my opinion, I think the two of them are, are very, very important to understand those two. Okay. Now, the Illuminati said they would infiltrate the seminaries, and I think they have, particularly the professorships. Okay. Yes, sir. You're number two? I believe I am. You're two. Okay. Why do I believe the, the antithesis of the conspiracy in the United States from Jekyll Island was promulgated in 1963 with Duff Kennedy and is formulated in the CIA? as our black government to this day. Why do I feel that? Because they haven't released all the records. In other words, the records have been sealed for 75 years. So anytime they're not releasing records, there's a suspicion of that. I think number two is, is that uh, there's too much funny business, unexplained things that went on surrounding the Kennedy assassination. I mean, there are a lot of things that don't make sense. And I think those two things coming together have left among the American people a general undercurrent of, of doubt about the assassination. The question the gentleman asked was on the Kennedy assassination, why he f has this feeling, can I say feeling, sir? Or under this premonition that there's something rotten that went on about the Kennedy assassination, the CIA, and whatever else. Well, that was just yeah. my thought. I just said it all came together. Right. So the conspiracy of the United States is broke out into the open at that time, and it continues to this to, to, to this time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could just see, you could just see, even amongst us today, with the with the 9/11 uh, call we had, we're not really getting the truism of who the enemy is and how to go get them. Mm -hmm. I think I think I think the reasons that it became it became apparent to the American public that they I mean as soon as somebody starts telling you a story that doesn't make sense or won't tell you the full story right away you say hey wait a minute what's wrong no number three number three sir I, I hate to criticize Louis XVI and I believe we should all be grateful for his foreign policy but might it not have been better if the French government had allowed these subversive theories to be published openly so that they could have been refuted openly. Um, now, the, the first, yes, you're right. Uh, Louis, um, 
I mean, his foreign policy, as he supported the United States um, breakaway, um, his economist, whom he fired, told him not to do it. His economist, Turgot, told him it would bankrupt France. <laughs> and it did bankrupt France. But uh, coming down to it, remember that the, the, um, the papers of the Illuminati were not known until, it was about three or four years later, when they were discovered in Bavaria. And the monarch of Bavaria released them all, published them all. And, I, and at that time, um, I don't think that, um, that the, the Bourbon monarchy realized the threat. This was an entirely new thing coming, that they ag exactly realized the threat. And he was constantly trying to be nice to these conspirators. I mean, Louis didn't really want to clamp down. And um, his brother one time told him, he said, Louis, he says, if you won't mount your horse, you'll mount the scaffold. I mean, in a lot of ways, Louis was a little bit weak. Uh, I wish in many times that he would have uh, been much stronger. Okay, but he wanted to be, in a sense, liberal and open and you can see where that land ended. The gentleman asked about Louis the Sixteenth. Should he have been stronger and um, clamped down the conspirators? Okay, number four. Yes, sir. Given your historical perspective as well as your economic knowledge, uh, and and the fact that today the dollar seems to be the most commonly and universally used currency in the world, which is different from any other circumstance in Britain, in Germany in the 1920s, in France. What would you predict for the economic future of the world, and how can Catholics best prepare for the circumstances that are likely to come about? Wow. Okay. Uh, he asked, what I, given the, the situation, what would I predict the future of the dollar and the economic circumstances and the future of the world? Um, number one is nobody knows the future, only God. Now, we can surmise it, we can say certain things, uh, but History can always change, and things can always come about. At the present time, I would say, and just I'm just giving you trends, not predictions. Okay, the trend of the dollar is for the dollar to continue to weaken over the long time because it's not a dollar that's backed by hard money. Number one, I mean that's any no. There's no currency that's ever survived any long period of time if it is not backed by gold and silver. I mean, that's just any economist, uh, even though they hate to say it, you take a look at the history of the world, even our own dollars today are changing because we have a different currency. It's a different looking currency, right? And sometimes they may say, well, all those old dollars are worthless, only the new dollars work. So if you saved $20 bills from 10 years ago, they look different. Gold doesn't change, okay? Silver doesn't change. So I think in a sense that... Um, we could see the dollar inflated out of existence. I mean, remember, when the Federal Reserve was passed, a dollar then is worth about a nickel today. And so we've had this constant uh, problem with inflation, and that's always a serious matter. Uh, the second very serious matter I think that we're looking at is a declining birth rate all over the world. And the question is, is will there be enough children to, um, to take our place who are well-trained, in the morality and are willing to stand up for things. And that's very serious, especially in Europe. I mean, Italy is dying out. Germany is dying out. And even the Pope said that he, what he's worried about is Islam coming in 
as the Italians die out and becoming taking over the Italian peninsula, taking over France, taking over Germany. So I, would, I think the second big economic problem is the falling birth rate. Okay, and that's happening every place except India and certain parts of South America. There's a few have this falling birth rate, and it's very, very serious. Now, given those things, on the optimistic side, on the optimistic side, I do think that your children will see a return to the gold standard. There's no way to coordinate currencies across borders with central banks because it's political money and everybody's arguing all the time. And I think that would be a, a tremendously good thing to have happen. I mean, remember, the, the Illuminists saw a number of things in their way to achieving world power. The British Empire, the U.S. Constitution, the gold standard, the Catholic Church. Okay, And they have systematically destroyed everyone but the church. They're not going to. But they've, worked, they've been working away at it. So in a sense, I think a restoration of honest money would, would have an enormously salutary effect. Uh, that, I think, also repealing and, and reinstituting or restrengthening private property. Now you're seeing, you're seeing movements in that area to strengthen private property. I mean, there are now bills coming in to strengthen that. <laughs> so I, I think, in a sense, that there's pessimism and optimism in looking forward. Um, I will tell you this, I mean, just as an economic prediction, I think this recession is going to last a little bit longer than people think. I don't think we're going to get out of this thing real quick. There's, we had a, a seven-year drunk, and we're going through the hangover. Now, we printed money like crazy to, to finance this boom under Mr. Clinton. And we, we went, uh, the Fed went crazy creating money. And whenever you do that, you create all kinds of malinvestments. And that's what we're looking at right now. So, so in the short term, I think we're going to have a little longer recession than they're telling you. Okay, and when I tell the newspapers this, they cut that out. They just put my optimistic stuff. That's why I say newspapers don't give you the whole thing. I told them, I said, monetary policy, I said it in January. She said, well, we'll just print out more money. It's not going to work. I mean, I don't care how much money the Fed prints up. It's not going to work this time because we're in that stage of the cycle. This is a, a trade cycle. And the, these malinvestments have to get cleaned out. And it's a, it's a hard thing to say. But we have to go, we're going through the hangover. It won't, I don't think it's a long-term hangover, but it's a hangover that we're going to go through. But to, to predict exactly what will happen is almost impossible. I mean, because so many factors come in that's really impossible. Okay, who's number five, right? Five? Okay, yes, sir. <laughs> I don't think I don't think anybody knows that because they're so hidden. I couldn't tell you that. Uh, I don't know. Okay, I know what I know what the results of what these people are doing, but I have no idea. She asked, "Who are the most five most powerful Illuminati families?" I don't know. I don't know. Okay, number six, six and seven. You're seven, sir. Okay. Number six. Do you think that our intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, work for the American people and the betterment of America and our Constitution? Or do you, in fact, think that they work for this elite conspiracy of Illuminati? 
And number two, do you think they had any free knowledge of 9-11? Okay. Uh, do, uh, number one, he asked me if I thought the national security agencies, let's just call them the FBI, CIA, etc., are working for our benefit. Number two, did they have any knowledge of 9-11? Well, let me answer the second part of your question first. Somebody had knowledge of 9-11 because the number of short sales of United Airlines stock and American Airlines stock and the number of puts put on that stock was 10 times the normal amount. Now you, you, know, you can't tell me that all of a sudden, you know where the short sale is, let me just explain it, it's where you make money when the stock goes down. And it was reported in Barron's. I'm not giving you anything that's not been reported in the press. Barron's Magazine, and the Germans discovered it. I mean, leave it to them, they discovered it, they're very thorough. And well, the thing is, is that it's reported in Barron's, okay? Now if that disappears, then you know that something's rotten in Denmark. Because you have, when you short sell, there's a, there's a ticket, there's a social security number, there's a name, there's a bank account. I mean, you could just take those short sales and round up the conspirators. Okay, so number one is, I'm telling you, that somebody had knowledge of it because they wanted to make a pile. I told my classes, I think, that Bin Laden actually used these guys as suckers. He told them they'd go to heaven and he made, them up, he made a pile. <laughs> I don't know who gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but whatever. Okay, number two, uh, on the national security agencies. I think um, they have a very, very mixed record. Okay? Um, they did not accurately predict the fall of the Soviet Union. They certainly uh, have not helped any of our allies to keep communism out when communism was going across the world. I think with the FBI, we certainly have to look with a lot of suspicion, uh, in a lot of ways violated the Constitution, and I, I can point to a number of incidents that are probably in your mind, Ruby Ridge and, uh, and this business in Waco, Texas, and uh, there's a lot of problems in that agency and in the CIA. Senator Taft from your state did not want those agencies because he was worried about exactly what you were saying. And I think that um, we, we may be stuck for a while to see if they can find these conspirators, but frankly, in the long term, I think we would be much better off without those kind of intelligence services. That's my own opinion. And I don't. I don't think they're constitutional, and I think they have engaged in a lot of things that you, as an American citizen, would not be proud of. Okay. Now, having said that, what do we do now? We have to find these people, but. You know, it might just be a matter of going through the stock brokerage reports and finding who the conspirators are. Okay, let's see, now you're number six. You're number seven, sir. Do you place any credence on the rumor that 4,000 people were advised not to show up for work on September 11th? Okay, he asked me if I had <coughs> any credence in the rumor that 4,000 people were told not to show up for work. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, that's the first I've heard it. Uh, I, I, I mean, there really is. I have not heard that rumor before, so I, I, I simply don't know. Okay. Anything else? Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, can you, how do you, in your opinion, how does the United Nations fit in this total picture? What's your opinion of that? Because I think well, the Constitution is being read in some way. 
Well, f uh, frankly, I agree with um, getting out of it. I, I mean, I think the United Nations, look, the United Nations, in a way, is a very evil institution. Because what the United Nations is doing, in the name of women's rights, is trying to force countries to adopt abortion practices. Okay? And I think the fact that they're involved in that is enough that we ought to sever our connections with that institution and say goodbye. They did not contribute to the fall of communism. I don't know, I don't know, okay? I don't know anything that the United Nations has done, frankly. And I think it's very dangerous to have these world courts superseding our Constitution. In other words, back in 1990, I was arguing against the um, Gulf War. You have to understand that economists and war don't get along. All right? War is to an economist what cancer is to a physician. Because it kills people, it disrupts trade, it wrecks things, it wrecks societies. So we were opposed. I wrote against the war. I was opposed to it. And, um, and as I w was doing that, you know, all of a sudden I heard, you know, Mr. Bush come on with this new world order business. And I was with a group of friends of mine, one of whom was a, uh, a federal judge. And I said, we can't go to war unless we have a declaration of war from Congress. And now here, here are a group of conserv quotes conservatives saying, we don't have to do that now. We've got the United Nations. Well, I mean, if you have a, a body that you do not elect and is making decisions for what you're going to do, I think that's extremely dangerous. In other words, it'd be like me putting the hands of my, my business in the hands of somebody who, who has no responsibility for it at all and tell them to make all the business decisions. I think, I think the United Nations, for us to, to be in that, is very, very imprudent, particularly now that they've gotten into the abortion game. And you have to understand, one of the things that the Illuminists want is population control. I mean, this is their, this is their big thing now. When David Rockefeller went out to talk with Packard, and Packard was ad advising David, how do I spend my money? David Rockefeller told him, put it into population control programs. Okay? Take a look at, um, who's the media guy with, C, with uh, Turner? Where did he put his money into population control? And I think that, that them getting involved in this particular area is extremely dangerous. Because all of us have seen in human history what population control means. I mean, this century has showed that. So no, I... And, and, and frankly, the United Nations does this much good for the world economy. Absolute El Zippo. So that's my answer. Okay. Any other questions? We got a few. Well, we're out of time. Okay. Well, it was great to talk to you. I really. Oh, we'll take one more, sir. Uh, do you see anything in the bond ICT market economics that disagrees with The first part of human action. Um, and that's his major book, is a little bit Kantian. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit more of Kant's uh, idea of knowledge, and there's some problems with it there. Uh, on the other hand, I think um, there's an enormous amount in that that would agree with uh, Catholic social theory. Uh, it's certainly much more than Marx or even much more than Adam Smith. 
And um, von Mises was not, a, the interesting thing was is that of all the economists, the Austrian economists were the only ones, now remember a lot of them, they were, either, they were of two types. They were either Catholic aristocrats from Austria or they were Jewish aristocrats from Austria. None of them wanted population control. All of them argued against it. Okay, now some of them were atheists, some of them were agnostics, some of them were Catholics. But in a sense, they have defended the church on the rights of families to educate their children, They've defended uh, the church's position on population and birth control. Um, they've defended the, uh, the church's position on the rights to private property. So I think in a sense, when you take a look at it, there's a lot more there on the upside than the downside. Sure. Okay, yes, miss. You haven't mentioned the Zionists. Are they in charge or are they Mason? <laughs> well, you know, the th I, I, I get this question. Most of these Illuminists were ex-Catholic priests. Most of the French revolutionaries were not, they were not Jewish. There's no influence of any Jewish influence in the French Revolution. The influence was apostate Catholic priest. And so I always remember one priest saying that the Antichrist are the ex-Catholics who are the problem. In other words, look at the Senate. We got seven Catholic senators who are pushing abortion. Daschle being number one. Now, I mean, a lot of people don't realize Daschle's a Catholic. Kennedy's a Catholic. Biden's a Catholic. All right? Um, Murkowski, Maryland's a Catholic. Dodd is a Catholic. Leahy's a Catholic. And there's another one. And, and they're all in there, and we would not have abortion in the United States if it weren't for those seven Catholic senators. So in a sense, was there a... A, uh, a Jewish movement to establish the state of Israel? Yes, and, and that's well known. I mean, that history goes back a long time. And their primary purpose was is that they wanted to establish uh, the state of Israel, and the Zionists wanted to do that. And they want to keep it in existence. And there certainly is a lot of effort to continue doing that. I don't think that they, they have this idea of this worldwide utopia, because there would be such a minority in it. So I don't, I don't really give a lot of credence to this thing. Certainly a lot of Jewish intellectuals got caught up with Marxism. But they were people who left the Jewish faith to do that, became atheists. So in a sense, I don't, I don't you know, say that they're uh, the group behind it. Are the Masons in back of it? I think that, uh, I don't think your average Mason who sells uh, the Daily Onions on the street to help kids in the hospital is in back of it. But I think at the top levels, these people are certainly part of it. And the Masons have always pushed a separation of church and state. They are the heirs of the French Revolution. I mean, they pulled off the revolution in France, and a lot of their thought is very, very parallel to it. All right, well, then are they, what is the ACLU, what is the ACLU? No, the ACLU is a tool. I, I think in a lot of sense, there's an inner core, probably, and you're going to think I'm crazy when I say this, but probably satanic, that uses various movements, that uses Zionism, that uses the Masons, that uses the ACLU to achieve their purposes. But I don't think any one of these is the identifiable head. And a lot of people who are involved in this don't even know they're involved in it. They're paying their money and 
the leadership is doing what it's doing. So no, I, that's, that'd be my opinion on it. But I'll tell you, the problem of the apostate Catholics is a major problem. Because if you read the history of Mexico, that was pulled off by that. The, the Nicaraguan Revolution was pulled off by priests that lost their faith. I mean, priests who lose their faith are very dangerous in, in the church's position. I don't know if their father will agree with me or not, but they lose their faith. It's very, very dangerous. So in a sense, uh, I always tell people that. Okay. That's it. No questions more. Okay, thank you very much. Wonderful audience.